Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. Come on, fellows. Places. Let's get the drama rolling. How do you do? This is Tide Brooks speaking. Do you believe that such a thing is a perfect murder? I do. In fact, I'm positive there are men walking about freely today who've committed murder and got away with it. Oh, yes, and women, too. They get away with murder. And how? These people who commit the perfect murder think they're pretty clever. Well, of course they are, in a way, let's face it. But murder breeds murder. Chances are they'll try the same thing again. This is where most of them are not so clever. Murders of this sort, what should we call them? Multiple murderers, habitual murderers, whatever you like, have a way of repeating their crime in exactly the same detail. You can't tell what goes on in their crazy minds, but probably they feel that to make any change would be risky. And one slip, just one slip, means a noose on the electric chair for them. Of course, they're wrong. Generally, fatally wrong. Sooner or later, someone is going to spot the fact that a number of murders have been committed that have a sameness about them. And that is where the crime ceases to be perfect. The pattern has been discovered, and of course, the next step is the discovery of the murderer himself. The casebook history of George Joseph Smith is a perfect example. In July 1915, he was put on trial at the famous Old Bailey for, uh, Drowning his wives in bathtubs. Yes, you've heard right. Why? Not just one of them. George Joseph Smith was a man of many marriages. Perfectly ordinary-looking fellow, except for his eyes. He has the most amazing hypnotic eyes. You'll probably never know just how many women he fooled with his smooth manners and loving words. And those eyes of his. His technique was always the same. He would propose marriage to a woman he knew had a bit of money put by. They'd be married, and Smith would manage to get hold of his wife's money. And then, disappear. Sometimes his wife had more money than he thought at the time of the marriage, sometimes less. And this happened with Betty Monday. Smith had married her in 1910 using the name of Henry Williams and gave his occupation as picture historian. They were married only a few days after their meeting. You see, Smith knew that her dead father had left for about 2,500 pounds in gilt-head securities. A nice, tidy little packet for Smith. But he found it wasn't so easy for him to lay hands on it. One morning, Bessie came home from a visit to the trustees who managed her estate. Yes, Mrs. Yes, sir. Well, Bessie, what's the you have? Well, it's not very good news, Henry, dear. You're going to be disappointed, I'm afraid. You mean they won't let you have the money? No, they won't. But your own money? Your father left it to you. What's the good of having money if you can't spend it? Well, the trustee said the, the principal has to be held in trust for me. There's no way I can have it all at once. But I still get my income of eight pounds every month. Eight pounds? That's not enough. How can I buy that picture with eight pounds? The old man wants nearly 200 for it. If I had that picture, I know where I could sell it again and get twice that for it. Make a 100% profit. 
and buying some really pretty things. Henry, dear, would he sell you the picture for 135 pounds? No. Good heavens. Where'd you get that money? I thought you said... I was saving the good news for the last. This is my small monthly income that's been piling up. I got it this morning from the trustee. Well, 135 pounds, eh? Yes. I was going to spend it on my wedding suit, though, but we were married in such a hurry. You... Oh, you just swept me off my feet. No, I couldn't take the chance of losing a little smasher like you. We're going to be very happy together, aren't we? That's what I told the trustees, darling. They were afraid you might be a fortune hunter just after my money. A likely tale. <laughs> Anybody could tell just by looking at you how wrong they are. Darling. I say, Betty, if you don't mind my borrowing that money from you, I'll just nip out and bargain with the old man for his picture. Perhaps I can get the lesson he's asking. What a clever man you are. Hurry back, dear. I'll be waiting. But George Joseph Smith had no intention of buying it, and he didn't come back. Now, Betty wasn't the first woman who tricked just as easily as that, nor the last. There was the widow at Brighton, from whom he got a hundred pounds. The young bride who took to visit the National Gallery left her waiting for him while he skipped off his securities for 270 pounds. There was another woman named Edith Pegler. Smith had married her in Bristol, and it was to her he went back each time after one of his escapades. Was she his one true love? He never defrauded her or ill-treated her in any way. So he read Shakespeare to her in the garden and played the piano. His ill-gotten gains, he set up a second-hand furniture store, and she ran it for him during his many absences. Curiously enough, he never knew the true source of his income. Whenever he chose to come back, he was content just to welcome him. He was a woman who never asked questions. Obviously, of course, the only one of a kind that ever existed. on one of his periodic business trips happened to be in Western Supermare when in a crowded, narrow street and before he could do anything about it, he met Bessie. His most embarrassing moment, you say? Not a bit. He told Bessie he'd been looking for her everywhere. Where on earth had she got to? He told Bessie that and he made it sick. What exactly he said to her? How in the world he explained away the fact that he'd never tried to get in touch with her friends or relations we shall never know. But it just shows you the power that Smith had over women. So, Betty and her over-married husband were reunited. They took a house on a year's lease and moved in. Edith, his other wife, no doubt continued to sell second-hand furniture. No comparison. Smith was very hard up at this time. He found out that the only way he could get hold of his wife's money was to have mutual wills made between husband and wife, each leaving the other all they possessed. If either should die, their possession would go to the other. If Bessie should die... On July the 8th, the bills were signed. A few days later, Smith, calling himself Williams, you remember, took Bessie to see a doctor. Well, what seems to be the trouble, Mr. Williams? It's the wife's doctor. She seems quite all right, but yesterday she... Well, she had a fit. A fit? Yes, went all sort of straight. And her eyes were staring. And then she got the shakes. 
It was awful, Doctor. Scared me stiff. Now, look how very distressing. The strange part is that I remember nothing about it at all. No, no one uh, unusually doesn't. I just had a slight headache yesterday, but I feel perfectly all right now. Very, I do. I think we'd better give you a thorough going over, Mrs. Williams. Don't you think so? Just to be on the safe side, you know. But whichever side, safe side, inside or outside. The doctor could find nothing wrong with easy-going, unsuspecting Betty. I'm sure you have no cause to be alarmed. Just take things quietly for a while, Mrs. Williams. Try to relax and don't worry about anything. Oh, thank you, doctor. I will. I'll give your husband a bottle of medicine for you. So just the sedatives and something to quieten the nurse. I'll look after her, doctor. She'll be all right. Won't you, Betty? Yes, Henry, dear. I know you'll take good care of me. Two days later, Miss and Betty returned home from a second visit to the doctor. But I'm so worried, Henry. I never had sick before. Nobody in our family ever had sick. Now, Betty, you mustn't worry. The doctor says there's nothing really wrong with you. These things just happen sometimes. It's so confusing. I don't ever remember anything about having a sick afterwards, I mean. Well... You get to bed early tonight and have a good rest. And tomorrow, if you find your headache coming on again, I'll fix you a nice hot bath. That'll be just the thing. A nice hot bath. There. You're almost full enough. It's a lovely bath, Henry. I think you were so clever to get such a bargain. Yes, but it's a half a crown cheaper than the fellow was asking. After all, I have to be careful how I spend your money. Oh, it isn't my money, Henry. It's our money. Yes, dear. And remember, very shortly I shall have money of my own again. It all goes well. I'm sure it will. Someday we'll have a bath that doesn't have to be by hand. One of those modern ones, won't you? Yes, dear. There. That nice and warm, isn't it? Perfect, Henry, dear. You're so good to me. Now, you get in. You just lie there and relax. Put all your worries out of your mind and just relax. There's nothing to worry about anymore. Through an epileptic seizure which had caused her to fall back under the water. 
The doctor's testimony that he'd been treating her for fits carried great weight. Although Smith appeared greatly shocked at his loss, he spent only seven guineas on the funeral, and the very next day started to get probate for the will. He eventually got all Bessie's money. He went back to Bristol and to his wife, Edith, the woman who never asked questions. He told her he'd been on a long business trip to Canada on the matter of a Chinese image, which he had sold very successfully. He soon lost most of that money in a real estate deal and went off on another business trip. Her name was Alice Burnham, 25-year-old nurse. And as usual, they were married a few days after their meeting. Alice had very little money, and so before their marriage, Smith took the precaution of having her life insured for 500 pounds. Two days after her, will was made in his favor. The honeymoon couple went to Blackpool, where they took lodgings with a Mrs. Costler. To her relatives, Alice wrote long letters of praise about the best husband in the world and how well he was taking care of her. He was. But she didn't mention the fact that she started to have pets. Oh, yes, Smith had obviously decided he was on a good thing. The ideal way of making money without too much trouble for himself. Of course, it included murder, but uh, with the poor dear so eager to do what he told them, it was all just... <laughs> On the second evening of that stay in Blackpool, Smith came to the landlady with a request. This is Crosby. My wife would want me to do her a favor. Such a pretty young girl, Mr. Smith. I'd be glad to. We're going on for a short walk, and she'd be very glad... If you'd let her have a bath when you return. Why, certainly, Mr. Smith. I'll have my daughter attend to it at once. No hurry. You won't be back for an hour or so. If you could just have the water nice and hot. Oh, there's nothing like an hot bath, is there? So relaxing to take your mind off all your worries. Yes, indeed. I quite agree with you. Another bride. Another bath. Another murder. <laughs> Verdict to the coroner's court was accidental death. George Joseph Smith chalked up two perfect murders to his discredit and went back to his wife Edith in Bristol. He told her his business trip this time had taken him to Spain. Again, she believed him implicitly, asked no questions. What a woman! And what a man! Or what a devil was this so called husband of hers who went by the good, honest, everyday English name of Smith? Those eyes of his filled some people with cold fear. Others with a blind faith in him and an eagerness to do whatever he wanted them to. It wasn't always necessary for Smith to go in for murder. He preferred, if possible, and it was that trouble, just to vanish out of the lives of his victims with, of course, whatever cash or valuables he could pry loose from them. Once when he returned to Edith Pegler... He brought her the complete crusoe of the woman he had just deserted, saying he'd made a good business deal in second-hand clothes. Marguerite Lofty was her next to his bride. On the very day of their marriage, Miss took her to a London doctor with her usual complaint of a fit. Next morning, she went to a solicitor 
I made a will in her husband's favor. Need I add that her life's already been insured for a nice, comfortable sum of uh, 700 pounds? In the parlor of a London lodging house, Smith is playing on a small harmonium, waiting for the bride he married yesterday. And where is she? Yes, you're right, upstairs, taking a bath. the music stopped, and then the front door slammed. A few minutes later, she answered the ring of the front door bell, and found Mr. Smith, whom she knew as John Lloyd, standing on the steps. Oh, it's you, Mr. Lloyd. Yes, I just popped out to buy some tomatoes for my wife's supper. She's very partial to fried tomatoes. Now, is that thoughtful of you? I'll find some to go with your supper. It's nearly ready. Has my wife come down yet? No, I haven't seen her. I'll just nip up and tell her she'd better hurry. I did enjoy your playing, Mr. Lloyd. And you, Margaret, Margaret, are you ready yet? Margaret, it is back, it is back. Come help me. She fainted in the barn. Another of his brides accidentally drowned in her bath. I can hear you asking, how long can this devil keep on getting away with it? Remember what I said about the danger of repeating a successful murder? You are bound to be found out. A few days later, Inspector Neal came into his office at Scotland Yard. Good morning, Sergeant. Anything interesting in the first today? Good morning, Inspector Neal. Well, I haven't opened all the letters yet. So far, there's four inquiries about missing persons. Yeah? Another plaintive note from Mrs. Doran. Who wants to know why we haven't found our missing Pekingese dogs at all. And a letter from a man warning us to be ready for the end of the world on Saturday. <laughs> I don't believe it's true, you. A bit rough, wouldn't it? Saturday's payday. Well, write and tell him so. Uh, wait a minute. This looks interesting, sir. Letter here from a man who runs a lodging house in Blackpool. He's enclosed a newspaper clipping about an inquest on a woman's death three years ago, in which one of his lodgers was involved. Verdict of accidental drowning in a bath. Let's see that later. Okay. Hmm. Here's he read in the papers about another accidental drowning of the same kind in London a few days ago. Both women supposed to have had epileptic fits. Could it be only coincidence? Well, why not? People have fits all over the place. Why not fits in their bath? Mm, true enough. All right, well, that's that. No. Look into it. Huh? I don't know why. It's Mr. and Mr. Crowley of Blackpool. And we'll check through the files to see how many more accidents of this sort have been. It was as close as that. The murder almost escaped notice even after Scotland Yard was told about it. But of course, once they started on the trail, it was all up with our hypnotic friend. What was he doing meanwhile? Snug in his cozy home with Edith Pegler. The wife who never asked questions, you remember? But this time I played she must have asked one or two because he was planning, um, what do you suppose? How's your headache now, Edith, dear? I'm afraid it really isn't any better. Sorry to be such a nuisance. Not a bit of it, dear. We'll have you fixed up in no time. Now, I'll tell you what to do. Run upstairs and draw a nice hot bath. A bath? Yes, Edith. A bath. That's a bit of a surprise coming from you. What do you mean? You've always been so funny about you having bath. I remember ever so many times you warned me that 
Too many bars aren't good for a woman. Well, I've changed my mind now. After all, you know. Now run along, dear, like a good girl. You'll have your headache cured in no time. Yes, yes. You always take such good care of me. Uh, Edith. Yes? Call me just when you're ready to get into the bar. All right, dear. Who the perishing blazes can that be? All right, all right, I'm coming. Who are you? What do you want? Are you George Joseph Smith? Yes. We're police officers from Scotland Yard. I hold a warrant for your arrest. And it's my duty to warn you that anything you say may be taken down and used in evidence against Saved by the bell. If ever a woman was saved by the bell, it seems to be it was Edith Pegler. What do you think? Scotland Yard rang the doorbell just in time. Otherwise, Smith would have had one more murder to answer for. The trial caused a sensation throughout Great Britain. The courtroom was always crowded with spectators, mostly women, by the way, who wanted to see for themselves what this man was like. Dressed in a green waistcoat and a loose sitting sports coat, he sat at the dock opposite the judge, staring at him with those compelling eyes of his. Eyes set high above prominent cheekbones, narrow lips, pointed chin. Hear what Sir Edward Marshall Hall, one of the leading barristers today, who was defending Smith, had to say. He had a horrible way of looking at one. It gave me a most unpleasant feeling, and I certainly formed the opinion that he had a curious way of influencing people. Sir Edward Marshall Hall was quite convinced that Smith was trying to hypnotize him. Now, do you realize the extraordinary thing about this case was that there was nothing but circumstantial evidence to prove this man was a murderer? A lot of people think you can't hang a man on circumstantial evidence alone. I wonder where that idea came from. All the same, the judge had a very ticklish point to decide. It was not, is this man innocent or guilty, but... Is there sufficient evidence in law to convict this undoubtedly guilty man? Nobody could prove that Smith himself actually held those three women under the water until they were drowned. But the way death had occurred in exactly the same manner, well, it was asking too much of anyone to believe that it could have been just coincidence. Nevertheless, this counsel tried to argue it was possible. It would be difficult to believe that... Uh, that the same number could come up on a left table five times in success. But if it happened, my life, you would not be entitled to convict the Coutier as a dishonest man. On the contrary, if I saw it happen and the same people were at the table all the time, I should consider I had a perfect right to go highly suspicious. Smith was quiet. He sat there listening to the evidence, piling up against him. But when Inspector Neal went into the witness box, he suddenly lost all control. He's a scoundrel. He won't be in this box. He will be one day. I uh, sit down. He's been doing what he's been trying for the last five years. I, uh, I don't get down what you say. You can't sentence me to death. I've done no murder. I'm innocent. How could he be innocent? How could he ever think himself innocent? Unless, and mind you, this is just an idea. Unless he put those women into a hypnotic can't and let them drown themselves. If that's how it happened, if he didn't actually hold them under the water himself, his sick brain might twist that into a belief that he was innocent. 
Inspector Neal had a theory as to how these murders were done, too. More the sort of theory you'd expect from Scotland Yard, more practical. As a matter of fact, almost too practical. It caused a sensation when he offered to put on a demonstration right there. The three bathtubs had been admitted as evidence. He had one of them filled with water. Then he produced a pretty girl in a bathing suit. From then on, things grew livelier by the minute. A gentleman of the judge, you are about to witness a practical demonstration of the method by which the prisoner Smith could have caused the death of those women who loved and trusted him, and who died, he says, accidentally. This young lady has consented to play the part of the victim. I myself will take the part we contend was played by George Joseph Smith. Are you ready, then? Yes, Inspector. Uh, very good. Now, if you'll be so kind as to step into the bath. Thank you. And yes, but to crouch over a bit as though you were going to sit down and stay well back so that you won't bump your head as you fall. I ask the jury to remember that there were no marks of violence on any of the victims except for two small bruises on the arm of Margaret Lockley. Have you arranged for the doctor to be present just in case? Uh, yes, sir. He's sitting over there. Very good. You may proceed with your uh, extremely interesting demonstration. Uh, now, miss, you quite understand what I'm going to do, don't you? Yes. You grab me by the seat and then sit me over straight downwards in the water. Uh, that's it. And you pretend to stop. Yes. Right. Now. Well, uh, help me out of her, Simon. If she is pretending she's fainted. Good Lord, help me. Doctor. The doctor, get the doctor, please. Inspector Neal's in the experiment proved almost too realistic. The girl at Song Summer was completely unconscious. And they had real difficulty in bringing her around. Having heard and seen all the evidence, it took the jury exactly 22 minutes to bring in a verdict of guilty. And though Smith appealed, the higher court upheld the verdict. George Joseph Smith paid for his crimes on the scaffold in August 1915. I wonder, would Smith have been able to cheat the hangman if he pleaded insanity? Neither, I don't know. But undoubtedly the man was quite mad. How else can you explain the behavior of a man who could read Shakespeare to one woman in a garden soon after he brutally killed another? Who could sit quietly at an organ and play a dirge for his bride, nearer my God city, a few minutes after he callously drowned her? To me, Smith is quite incredible. And, uh, I'll it. Fascinating, too. As a footnote to the story of George Joseph Smith, let me tell you about Caroline Justice Thornhill, the first woman he married. Somehow he managed to get her into trouble with the police and deserted her. Two years later, Beatty was in London and saw her husband looking in a shop window. But unlike Betty, Betty Monday, you remember, Beatty did not believe in sweet reunion. He had her husband arrested by the nearest policeman and sent to jail for two years' hard labor for receiving stolen goods. Tip the tax, you might call it. When he came out of prison, Smith swore to murder her. Beatty fled to Canada for safety, vowing she'd never come back to England. But she did. Yes? When Smith was sentenced to death, his first bride was there in court to see. Treacle is sweet, she said. But revenge is sweeter. Nice girl. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.